0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. First, a season Behind the News guest, Anatole Levin discussing, no surprise here, Ukraine. And then Alyssa Giacchino and Derek Seidman will talk about the role of private equity in destroying the climate. In February 1997, the 93-year-old George Kennan, one of the architects of the Cold War policy of containment to the USSR, wrote this in the New York Times. Expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American foreign policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect in the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. Why, with all the hopeful possibilities engendered by the end of the Cold War, should East-West relations become centered on the question of who would be allied with whom, and by implication against whom, in some fanciful, totally unforeseeable, and most improbable future military conflict? The disaster he foretold is upon us. To help us understand all this, here's Anatole Levin. In the 1980s and 90s, Levin covered the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus for the Financial Times and the Times of London. In the 2000s, he worked at a number of think tanks in Washington and is now a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Anatole Levin. This war is just horribly brutal, and um, everyone I know is in a terrible state of mind over it, but it didn't come out of nowhere. What George Kennan worried about 25 years ago has pretty much come to pass.
1: Well, exactly. Since the, the mid-1990s, when the uh, the issue of NATO enlargement first came out, Russian officials, Russian intellectuals, and leading Western experts, including George Cannon, the architect of containment, uh, and myself, in a small way, have all been saying that if this were, were extended one day to Ukraine and Georgia, uh, it would lead at best to deep confrontation and at worst to war. The Yeltsin administration warned of this. This is not just a Putin thing. And Putin has been warning of it consistently. And of course, over the past uh, almost three months by now, before the war, the Russian government was making clear uh, that there was a a threat of war uh, if the West did not um, compromise on what Russia regarded as its vital interests. The Russian government has, well, obviously, it's committed a very grave crime under international law by invading Ukraine. I think it has also made a terrible mistake. But as you say, in international relations, one also has to take account of realities. And, you know, the reality is that Russia has always regarded keeping Ukraine out of a hostile Western alliance as vital uh, to Russian national security.
0: How much um, infiltration or uh, manipulation of the political scene uh, in Ukraine has the US and and other Western powers um, been guilty of? Um, Has there been conscious subversion of the Russians rightly paranoid about that, or um, are they just uh, getting carried away?
1: In 2014, I mean, it was obvious from funding, including by institutions that are rather uh, comically in America called non-governmental institutions, even though they're funded by Congress, like the National Endowment for Democracy, to the Ukrainian opposition, made clear the West's desire to overthrow the then Elected by the way, government of Ukraine, President Yanukovych. And obviously, there was the famous intercepted telephone conversation by um, Victoria Newland, which made clear the role of the Obama administration in, in manipulating the formation of the, the next Ukrainian government. Since then, it hasn't been exactly a matter of covert manipulation, but, you know, the West has aided Ukraine, has uh, strongly encouraged Ukraine uh, to try to join. The Western alliance, while not actually offering Ukraine <laughs> membership or anything but the vaguest possibility of membership in future, and of course, some um, the West has funded, educated, supported large numbers of the Ukrainian elites. But this is not covert manipulation. You know, this is overt. You can say Ukraine's development towards free market democracy which is quite true. But I mean, it is obviously also an attempt to turn Ukraine into a Western ally. If the West, you know, as it's done in some other places, had supported democracy in Ukraine and economic reform, but without raising this for 12 years now, they've had no intention of actually implementing, but you know, suggesting this idea of, of Ukraine joining NATO. you know, If we'd stuck to the one without introducing the other, maybe this catastrophe could have been avoided.
0: Yeah, I noticed you said in the prospect interview uh, that uh, we never had the slightest intention of defending Ukraine, not the slightest. Now, was that ever expressed? Did the Ukrainians understand it? Did they not hear it? Were they not told it?
1: I think they must have understood it more or less, or at least sensible Ukrainians did. Uh, because after all, we'd done the same thing to Georgia in 2008 you know when there was this half promise of nato membership but when this led to war with russia well actually georgians attacked the russians in south Ossetia. of course america never came to georgia's aid and the west didn't come to ukraine's aid in 2014 but there are two problems really one is that for a long time now i mean really ever since the 1990s we have made membership of nato and the european union synonymous with belonging to europe that has two problems The first is that it makes it virtually impossible for democratic reformers anywhere in Eastern Europe not to try to join the EU and NATO uh, because they are basically branding themselves as second class Europeans or non-Europeans. So the option, which was entirely viable in itself, of joining Finland and Austria as free market democracies, but non-aligned ones, we morally and emotionally and politically speaking closed that door. But the second thing, of course, was that um, by defining Europe in these terms and, and going in for this NATO rhetoric of Europe whole and free, we told the Russians completely explicitly, uh, you're not Europeans, go away, we don't consider you part of Europe and we're not going to consult you about European affairs. Well, you know, that is about as deep an insult to Russia as one can easily imagine. And you know, it was not going to go down well with any Russian government, let alone Putin's.
0: What are Putin's goals here? Do we have any idea? Does he really believe Ukraine is a fiction, or more of a fiction than most nations are? Or does he want a buffer zone, complete absorption? What's the end game? Well, <laughs>
1: the answer is, I don't know. Um, in fact, I mean, the, the, the striking thing is, you know, I've been talking to, um, you can imagine, quite a lot of uh, what you, members of what you might call the outer Russian establishment. And they were all, without exception, surprised by many aspects of this Russian invasion. And they all said that now the decision-making circle in Russia, in the Russian government, and the circle of people who Putin actually listens to, has narrowed to fewer than 10 people. It's become very, very, very closed.
0: Those pictures of him at that gigantic table are capturing something, aren't they?
1: Yeah. well, And of course, COVID, as many people say, I think has made this this worse. But uh, as a result, I mean, you could say a bit like US administrations in the run-up to Vietnam and Iraq, but much more so. It seems likely that Putin has, in fact, been cut off or cut himself off from accurate and objective uh, information. All I can say is that if Putin was, and his immediate followers, if they were so incredibly stupid, as to believe that they could impose a puppet government on the whole of Ukraine, then, uh, you know, unless they're blind, um, as well as mad, they must realize that the strength of Ukrainian resistance and, you know, the display of Ukrainian unity since the war began, you know, have rendered that completely impossible. This isn't Czechoslovakia or Hungary during the Cold War, where you, you know, you at least had the structures of a communist party to maintain Soviet domination. You will not be able to, to create anything but the most grotesque, ridiculous, obvious puppet authority in Kiev, if that's what Putin wants. It will, it will lack all legitimacy. Uh, it will be totally incapable of running a stable state. It will face continual protests and resistance, which will have to be put down by ruthless means. And it will necessitate the permanent presence of a Russian army to, to keep it in place. You know, just like the Soviet Union or America in Afghanistan, the war so far has clarified some things. One thing it's clarified is is that although you know NATO has imposed harsh economic sanctions, as I say, NATO will not fight for Ukraine, which of course makes the idea of Ukrainian NATO membership completely empty. Ukraine might as well give that up and sign a treaty of neutrality. But on the other hand, uh, I, I think it has completely destroyed Russian plans, if if that's what they were to impose. A puppet government, I mean not just in, in Ukraine, but even in most of the Russian speaking areas of Ukraine. Because apart from anything else, the it as is now apparent, I mean, to capture the cities in Ukraine, Russia will, you know, it can't just walk in. The Ukrainians will fight back very hard, and in the process, of course, large parts of these cities will be destroyed, and large numbers of wretched civilians will be killed. Well, how can you possibly set up a pro Russian government on the basis of, of that? So I wonder. I mean, it does look as if the Russians are going to have going to storm Kharkov, and well, they're attacking Mariupol and um, in the south. But I wonder, as far as Kiev is concerned, you know, Kiev being by far the biggest Ukrainian city, whether Putin has made up his mind yet actually to storm it, uh, or whether he is aiming to blockade Kiev in an effort to put pressure on the Ukrainian government to make peace on, you know, some version of Russian terms, perhaps not full Russian terms. We don't know how far Russia will compromise on its terms. We'll have to see. But uh, as I say, I mean, I think the maximal Russian aim in Ukraine, thank God, uh, has already been defeated by the Ukrainian people and army. How long can that go on? This is beginning to take on aspects of Chechnya in in 1994 to 96, which I covered as a British journalist on on both sides, Uh, or or even in a way, one could say the the American invasion of Iraq, uh, which is to say, I don't know um, how much the Russian army as a whole was really behind this invasion. You know, there are suggestions that once again, the bulk of the generals were not consulted and certainly some of them have looked extremely unhappy on television but you know when an army is in a war particularly a war of of this kind of importance to russia they want to win um and of course putin cannot leave ukraine without the appearance of at least you know a limited success uh, or i think he would actually be finished i think there would be a a some form of coup against him from within the regime so i have this horrible feeling that uh, you know if they can't get a peace agreement which allows them you know, to claim a measure of success, that they will feel that they have no choice but to go on, you know, irrespective of the destruction and the civilian casualties. And then, of course, once they've occupied large areas of of Ukraine, well, I mean, in the end, there will always have to be a negotiated settlement of some kind. The importance of Ukraine to Russia is so great that the Russians, I don't think any Russian government, You know, I hope very much that Putin will be overthrown as a result of this. But I don't believe that any Russian government will simply withdraw from Ukraine, you know, as a whole and give up Crimea and the Donbass Republic. So Russia will not withdraw from Ukraine the way that, you know, the Soviet Union or America withdrew from Afghanistan. So in the end, there will always have to be some form of negotiated solution by which Russia withdraws. And, you know, my my own view is we should all seek a, a negotiated solution now, because it may be that in 10 years' time, I don't know, 20 years' time, we will get basically the same solution that we could have got today. The difference, of course, will be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian lives.
0: I'm speaking with Anatole Levin, Senior Research Fellow in Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute. What about the nuclear threats? I mean, I find myself being nostalgic for the Soviet leadership, which is at least seemed somewhat rational. Is Putin that unhinged that these uh, should be taken seriously? No, I don't
1: think so. I mean, this, you know, given that Russia does have either the largest or the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world, and he knows, you know, for very good reasons that people are scared of nuclear war, it's crazy in one way. I mean, by you know, in a rational world, it would be crazy. But of course, we don't live in a rational world. In the actual world, it's an obvious weapon for, for Russia to brandish to frighten the West. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's going to launch a nuclear attack, and nor, of course, are we. Uh, but w- what I worry about more is that if we get into a state of permanent deep tension, if we have a guerrilla war on Russia's borders, you know, probably overlapping into terrorism in Russia itself. Backed by the West through Poland, the level of tension and the p- potential for armed cr- clashes will be such, you know, as has not existed in Europe between Moscow and the West since I mean, basically the Berlin airlift blockade of 1948. And in those circumstances, you know, of heightened tension and fear on both sides, there is always the possibility of some disastrous accident or miscalculation. We really need to remember the number of times which have now come out when, by accident, uh, there could have been a nuclear exchange during the Cold War. Several times it came down to the wisdom uh, and caution of one man on either side, one man you know. So, um, you know, just because Putin is not going to deliberately fire missiles at us doesn't mean that the, you know, the the threat isn't really genuinely there.
0: What about the Western reaction? Are sanctions that effective? And now we hear some yahoos on cable TV talking about attacking the Russians, declaring no fly zones. Um, What about the Western reaction? How much can we do? I haven't
1: noticed that any of these people calling for no-fly zones uh, are going to be flying US and NATO planes themselves. As far as I can see, there are no um, pilots among them, right? But As I've said again uh, several times in recent days, chicken hawks don't fly. They squat on the ground uh, at a very safe distance and squawk loudly. No, I mean, uh, sanctions is what we've got, basically. Um, plus, I fear... I think this is a terrible idea, by the way, but I fear support for a Ukrainian insurgency against Russia, if, of course, Russia occupies areas where such an insurgency can be launched. Now, as to the effectiveness of these sanctions, well, I mean, obviously, what the West is trying to do is to hurt Russia as badly as possible uh, without hurting the West, and, of course, in this case, particularly the Europeans who are dependent on Russia for uh, energy imports. You know, we've sanctioned everything we possibly can, short of cutting off the gas and oil. Uh, So, I mean, that being so, Russia will still have uh, an international revenue stream. But um, on the other hand, you know, the sanctions that have been imposed will hit Russia uh, very badly. And I think are harsher than Russia expected, particularly the the sanctions, you know, against um, Russian Central Bank. And will lead to uh, Russia's isolation uh, from at least the Western economies, except in, in the area of energy. In addition, the, the measures introduced by the, the, the West uh, and the countermeasures introduced by Russia uh, will hit uh, ve- very badly the international lifestyles of the Russian elites, and especially the younger elites to which they've become accustomed. This doesn't affect the inner circle around Putin. I mean, these are hard men, as they say in Ireland. Um, They are undoubtedly deeply patriotic in their own sense. And they are very, very determined and resolute and, of course, completely ruthless. But I think it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, in the 1980s, as the children of the Soviet elites became aware of how much better they could live in a westernized Russia for pretty cynical reasons, I have to say, in many cases, but still, than they were in a Soviet Russia. That played a huge part in the fall of communism and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And, you know, if uh, y- you are plugged in to the wider Russian elites and listening uh, to what they're saying in private, but actually what some of them have even started to, to say in public, um, you-, you do see that they they are becoming really anxious Uh, And of course, they understand better than the rest of the population, even the educated population, just how badly this is going to uh, affect them. If this goes on uh, over a long period, you know, and and the Ukrainian quagmire goes on for a long period, then I think discontent against Putin will mount very, very high. If it mounts high enough, uh, look, one doesn't know. uh, But I think it's more likely than you know a revolution on the streets like in ukraine in 2014 or georgia i think more likely would be a coup from within the putin regime basically to get rid of him and some other top officials perhaps you know it could be a relatively polite coup you know a delegation goes to him and says very politely you know we respect your record we guarantee your property and your personal security and that of your family but it's time to go Uh, But as I've said, I don't think that any Russian government that succeeds Putin will simply surrender unconditionally in Ukraine, in the sense of of giving up Crimea and the Donbass and acceding to Ukrainian NATO membership um, and giving up any guarantees for the Russian minority in in Ukraine. I, I find it very difficult to believe that that. You know, unless Russia actually collapses as a state, uh, that any Russian government will agree to that. Now, I'm very afraid, looking at some of the voices in America now, that a a good many people in the in the American security establishment do now want to use this to destroy Russia as a state. But in the first place, that you know condemns us to endless economic warfare against Russia, with everything that would mean for the world economy. It condemns Ukraine to endless war with horrible suffering for the Ukrainian people. Uh, But also, of course, a program of sanctions, which is openly aimed at what many Russians would see as not just getting rid of Putin, but destroying the Russian state, uh, could have um, uh, the completely opposite result um, as far as the support of Russians for the regime. We just don't know. But I mean, what we do know is that similar sanctions aimed at regime change in Cuba, in Iraq, in Venezuela, in Iran, in North Korea have all failed, all of them, all of them without exception. And so um, all one can say is, look, it could be different in the case of Russia, but there are no historical grounds to believe this.
0: Now, who... Is Putin's power base? Who surrounds him? Does he have a a constituency in the uh, the elite? Or is it pretty much a a small little clique of um, cronies?
1: Well, I mean, the thing is that Putin has assembled a wider establishment, which is beholden to him in many ways, you know, and he has tamed the what remains of the old financial and economic oligarchy and gained their public support. Um, But, you know, these people are extremely cynical and self-interested and ruthless. They will not stick with Putin if they think that, you know, their own vital interests are are in danger or that sticking with Putin is going to mean that, you know, their own fortunes and positions will be destroyed. The inner circle, the people who are completely beholden to Putin, uh, or not perhaps exactly beholden to Putin, but are completely identify with Putin, who have exactly the same background and ideology, are a very small group of uh, mainly ex-KGB people, uh, or linked to the KGB in various ways. Um, And they occupy all the top positions in, in, at least on the security side in government. And also they've been put in control of Russia's, uh, a large part of Russia's energy uh, economy um, and various other places. So there's quite a sharp difference between this this small inner group of, they're called the Siloviki in Russian, the, the men of force, or as I say, the hard men, um, and the wider establishment. Um, and I suppose one question is whether any of this inner circle will turn against Putin. I mean, if enough of them do, then it's, it's over for him. Uh, but on the other hand, they're so closely associated with him, they're so closely associated with the war, that it would be very difficult for them to do so. Then, of course, there is the question of the Russian army. Now, the, the, the Russian army, um, like the Soviet army before it, has never been involved in, in politics. And also, you know, they don't want to lose in Ukraine. Uh, but, um, you know, if you get a, a, an endless quagmire, um, then at the very least, they, they may start, you know, really, really pressing for a diplomatic compromise to get out of Ukraine. If, of course, the Ukrainians and the West are prepared to offer a, A compromise, because you know there's one issue that people haven't looked at yet. But the the Ukrainians are trying to call up basically, you know, all their men of military age. How many many they'll get? It depends on how much territory Russia conquers. Uh, It depends on how many Ukrainians flee to the west. But even so, I mean, if if Ukraine calls calls up everybody it possibly can, it will in fact hugely outnumber the existing. Russian army in Ukraine. Now, if the Russians in response have to call up their reservists, you know, here we're talking about, uh, you know, ex conscripts who served um, and then went, left the army and now have jobs and have families. You know, if you start telling 28 year old Russians to leave their well paid jobs and their children and return to fight in Ukraine, a war. Uh, that they were never consulted about, and where they've been watching, you know, pictures, uh, very demoralizing pictures of Russian Ukrainians, Russian-speaking women and children being killed. That, I think, is the moment when, if it has to do that, then the Putin regime will be in really serious trouble, um, if it has to call up a large part of the Russian population to fight. And I think at that point, Putin uh, would have signed his political death warrant.
0: And finally, um, we're seeing China now stepping in possibly into a peacekeeping role. How much of all this reflects the decline of US power and prestige? And is there anything to this talk of a, a Russia-China alliance?
1: Just as you know, the West has not fought for Ukraine. So China has not actually officially sided with Russia in Ukraine. It abstained in the UN Security Council. Uh, it has stressed you know, respect for international law and international sovereignty. And we don't yet know how far China will go in supporting Russia economically. This will be very, very expensive for the Chinese. Um, And they would also drive an extremely hard bargain in terms of redirecting uh, Russian energy exports to China to guarantee, uh, you know, China's energy security. So it seems to me that China is... Is not actually so far trying to exploit this crisis as much as it um, as much of it uh, as it might have. If China would step in and broker a reasonable compromise, this would be an excellent thing because I don't trust the United States to do so, to be honest, given the strength of the anti-Russian agendas here and the desire of some people actually to turn this into a permanent war to destroy Russia. So I think it would be an excellent thing if the Chinese stepped in. But I also know that the, the, uh, America would do everything in its power to block a Chinese brokered agreement. As to the, the decline of American power, it is striking just how distorted the view of the world of many establishment americans has become over the past 30 years even after the failure in iraq and afghanistan and the rise of china and you know the failure to pacify the middle east and the disaster that followed the intervention in libya you know there still is this idea around that one heard so often in the 90s and well into the 2000s that basically america can do anything anywhere. Doug, we're we're both old enough, right, you know, to remember back before the end of the Cold War. Now, if you think back 25 years, sorry, 35 years, if you had said to anybody, and I mean anybody in a Western position of authority, or any serious intellectual, uh, that the West should support uh, a war in Ukraine, not take part in it, but support it, for the sake of Ukraine joining NATO theoretically and turning Ukraine into a full military ally of the West against Russia—you know—even the hardest line Western, uh, you know, anti-communist hawks would have laughed their heads off. They'd have said, "You must be mad!" You know, uh, we we don't have the resources to do that. That will lead to actual war with Moscow. Uh, don't forget, they have thousands of nuclear missiles, and by the, and in any case, how could this possibly be in our interest if we can, you know, to, to take such an appalling risk and make such a commitment? If if we can, you know, manage to get not just the Poles and the Czechs and the Hungarians, but to rescue the Bolts from the Soviet Union and free them and turn them into Western allies, well, this would be a, you know, a, a magnificent, a historic, a wonderful Western victory. It's rollback, right? Yeah, I mean, but you, you surely, people would have said, you, you can't be suggesting we should go further than that. Well, now, of course, we've spent years thinking that we could go further than that. And the result has been disaster.
0: That's Anatole Levin, Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. The Institute is based in DC. Levin is based in London. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
2: No more diluted by reaction
3: On tyrants only will make war The soldiers too will take strike action They'll break ranks, they'll fight no more And if those cannibals keep trying To sacrifice us to the pride They soon shall hear the bullets flying. We'll shoot the generals on our own side. Us, comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race. Us, comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites.
0: The human that was some of the Internationale performed by Alastair Hewlett. Next, a look at some despoilers of the planet. Private equity, or PE, is the name given to investment funds that generally buy and sell entire companies, using money raised mostly from big institutional investors like pension funds and college endowments, along with some very rich individuals. PE funds are generally run by small management teams who charge very high fees and take large cuts of any profits generated by their activities. Those activities typically consist of buying an appropriate target firm, loading it up with debt so the P.E. managers can pay themselves big dividends, cut costs to maximize their cash flow, and then sell the firm a few years later, often to another P.E. firm. They operate largely out of public scrutiny, and partly because of that, they're deeply involved in dirty industries like oil and coal. They've gotten in deeper as a lot of more mainstream financial organizations like banks and money managers who deal with a broader public than private equity have been trying to recast themselves as friends of the earth. The Public Accountability Initiative and the Private Equity Stakeholder Project are just out with a report, Private Equity's Dirty Dozen, on 12 leading PR mavens and the fossil fuel producers in their portfolios. Joining us are Alyssa Giacchino of the P.E. Stakeholder Project and Derek Seidman of the Public Accountability Initiative, a.k.a. Lil Sis, as opposed to Big Brother, who are two of the four authors of the report. The last couple of years, a lot of big financial institutions, I guess led by Larry Fink and BlackRock, put on green disguise, trying to pretend to care about climate in particular. And whether it's true or not, um, they do feel the urge to at least act the part. But um, it seems like a lot of the private equity guys just don't care and are able to get involved in some of the dirtiest businesses on earth. Is that a correct impression?
3: So, yeah, you have public asset managers like BlackRock and Larry Fink that have a much higher public profile. And it's true that while there are a handful of the private equity managers like Schwarzman that are slightly better known. On the whole, private equity firms operate largely outside of the scrutiny of the public eye. There's a lot more momentum that has been built over many years by shareholders and other activists to pressure public asset managers like BlackRock to take more seriously and to invest in ways that are sustainable for environmental reasons to invest in ways that advance racial justice and the private equity industry because it operates largely in the shadows just hasn't felt the same degree of pressure
0: although um, a lot of uh, public pension funds uh, for example have large uh, private equity holdings university endowments have large private equity holdings but uh, some of the more anti-social sides of the private equity investment uh, get uh, hidden from public view
3: unfortunately that is the case it's I mean it's in the name, right? It's private equity. So it's shielded. Institutional investors like university endowments, corporate pensions, or public pensions commit large amounts of capital to private equity firms, but they relinquish control. They are limited partners. And so they rely on the managers that these external private equity managers to make all of the investment decisions and Rarely get granular information about how those investments play out. They, the investors themselves get some information about performance, but they don't necessarily have visibility into how the that money is made.
0: Let's talk about a few of these characters uh, that are in your report. Uh, my favorite is the first one, uh, Steve Schwartzman, the man who uh, likened uh, Obama's brief mention of a tax increase on his crowd. Um, he, Said it was like Hitler's invasion of Poland. Who's Steve Schwartzmann and what does he do with all this money?
2: Stephen Schwartzmann is one of the wealthiest persons in the world. I just checked on Forbes and he's worth 38 billion. Uh, it was actually recently reported that last year he took in 1.1 billion in income from Blackstone, the private equity firm that he is co-founded and that he serves as chairman and CEO of. Schwartzmann doles out hundreds of millions of dollars to universities, to cultural institutions, um, in a sort of you know, vanity effort to get buildings named after him. There's a Schwartzmann Center at Yale. There's a, a Schwartzmann College of Computing at MIT. He's got uh, buildings and centers named after him at Oxford, the New York Public Library, and so on. In fact, there was a, a funny story. He, he offered to donate $25 million to his, his alma mater high school, and initially, you know, the school took it with the condition that they had to name the school after him. They had to have a big portrait of him when um, you walked into the front entrance. When the community heard about this, they, you know, got up in arms and they ended up having to give the money back and, and not go ahead with the deal. Schwartzman uh, is also, you know, a real powerful political player. He um, was a close ally of Donald Trump. He was a big donor to Trump. He gave close to four million dollars to Trump. He was the chair of Trump's CEO Council. He was one of his top economic advisors throughout his presidency. He actually personally hosted a celebratory fundraiser for Trump after Trump's tax plan passed in 2017. He's a, you know been a longtime political insider and big donor to the Republicans. One other thing to say about him is that all these private equity executives live lush lives, but um, Schwarzman lives an extremely lush life. He was notorious for throwing a 60th birthday party in 2007 that cost $3 million. It was right around the time of when the housing housing market was crashing, and it was attended by Donald Trump, Colin Powell, just a whole sort of set of uh, celebrities and political figures. A decade later, he also did the same thing, and, and that party was estimated to be $20 million He has a history of, you know, throwing these utterly extravagant birthday parties and events for himself with live camels and acrobats and fireworks. And he owns, you know, mansions all around the world from, you know, West Palm Beach to Newport, Rhode Island.
3: He's really, you know, a true aristocrat.
0: But he's also up to his ears in carbon.
3: He is. Blackstone has, among private equity firms, one of the largest footprints in fossil fuel investments. But there's not a lot of visibility for the general public and in many cases even for their investors of the extent of their holdings they own tens of billions of dollars in fossil fuels that they have built you know liquid natural gas export terminals along the gulf coast offshore drilling operations in the gulf they have onshore pipelines they have bought up Thousands of kilometers of pipelines across the United States where they have controlling stakes or partner with other infrastructure firms. They own one of the highest polluting coal plants in the United States in Ohio, the Gavin plant, which they co own with another private equity firm called Arclight. And just recently, Blackstone came out saying that they made sort of the, a limited statement indicating that they would not pursue upstream assets, meaning drilling assets, uh, which they do currently own fracking operations in various parts of the United States. But they also said that they would continue to invest in midstream and downstream fossil fuel operations, which includes pipelines and transportation and storage and power generation, all of which have enormous carbon footprints. Essentially, Blackstone has committed that they will continue to contribute to climate change through investments in fossil fuels.
0: Okay, next to the list, uh, the second chapter, um, David Rubenstein of uh, Carlisle. And he's unusually, for uh, someone in his set, uh, based in D.C., right? He came into this through politics?
2: Yeah, David Rubenstein is probably one of the most powerful people in the United States. He's really been able, through his his connections and through massive donations, he's been able to position himself really at at the intersection of political power, cultural institutions, big universities, think tanks. He's currently the chairman of Kennedy Center, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, chairman of the Economic Club of Washington, D.C., basically a CEO club for Washington, D.C. He's a trustee of the Harvard Corporation and trustee of the University of Chicago. He's chairman of the National Gallery of Art.
0: He, he'd hardly have time to count his money if he's like... <laughs>
2: exactly, yeah. And he, he you know, he tries to position himself as sort of a modern-day Renaissance man. He writes books um, or you know, supposedly writes them. He has interview uh, shows that he does uh, he's you know spends millions and millions of dollars buying up historical artifacts. Yeah, uh, I think he owns a couple stone engraving copies of the Declaration of Independence. He owns a copy of the Magna Carta. He is able to spend all this money to burnish his reputation like this. But on the other side of things, yet Carlyle's made enormous dirty fossil fuel investments.
0: I love these uh, these diagrams you've got in this report. Uh, but he's got what something like sixty five companies in his portfolio, sixty five fossil fuel companies.
3: Yeah, Carlyle is one of the biggest investors in fossil fuels, and they have sort of a two-pronged approach. Carlyle itself, which manages hundreds of billions of assets on behalf of their investors, Carlyle itself invests in fossil fuels around the globe. Pipelines in Spain, they have energy companies in sub-Saharan Africa, they invest in Europe in South America and across the United States in fossil fuels directly, but they also own another asset manager called NGP. And NGP is almost entirely devoted to fossil fuels. The initials originally stood for natural gas partners. Carlyle has this interesting bifurcation where the the firm Carlyle and its private equity or infrastructure strategies, credit strategies, invest in and support fossil fuels. But then they have this separate arm that is entirely devoted to fossil fuels, potentially related to the relationships with institutions and think tanks that that Derek has mapped for you. Carlisle recently came out with a net zero 2050 announcement that they would aim to get their firm to net zero 30 years into the future, which given this week the UN scientists came out with the latest installment in their IPCC report that talks about how much we have already raised the temperature and the consequences of that are playing out in real time in terms of damaging habitability for communities across the globe. Carlisle is not entirely immune to the global conversation around how do we address climate change And reduce carbon emissions on a scale and a timeline that avoids the worst, most catastrophic consequences of climate change. So Carlyle did come out with an announcement a few weeks ago with a 2050 net zero plan and very little specifics.
0: That's the voice of Alyssa Giacchino, Campaign and Research Director on Climate at the Private Equity Stakeholder Project. We're talking to her and Derek Seidman, a little sis, about the report they helped write, Private Equity's Dirty Dozen. That word net, too, uh, allows a lot of wiggle room, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, it, we don't know what they mean by net. Net has been widely criticized because it involves... Uh, questionable strategies and technologies that don't really exist like carbon tra- capture, but also planting trees when we already have land rights violations happening. And like, there are a lot of false solutions. And many of the, the companies that have made grandiose net zero 2050 announcements are making no changes to their operations now, which is when it matters, um, and are relying on on strategies that
0: don't really work. If you've got 65 carbon companies in your portfolio, (laughs) you've got a lot of netting out to do.
3: Exactly. And Carlyle doubled down in the wake of that announcement. They doubled down with an op-ed in Fortune where they said the best way to address the climate crisis is to continue to invest in fossil fuels. Their framing is that they will work to reduce emissions at the companies that they operate. And there is some value to reducing, for example, we do need to reduce methane emissions at fracking operations.
0: What we really need to do is shut down fracking, yeah, right?
3: Exactly, yeah. So it ties into this larger narrative that a lot of you know, insurance, financial firms, companies like BlackRock that operate in the public markets, where they're pretending to be part of the solution, while in reality, they continue to do business as usual.
0: And we've only got time for w- one more of these characters. Um, Henry Kravis, who is, uh, was the walking symbol of the Roaring 80s, and he's still uh, doing plenty of evil on this planet. Yeah,
2: Kravis, the co-founder of, of KKR, he's worth around $9 billion. Kravis, is uh, he's the co-chair of the Bo- Board of Overseers of the Columbia Business School. He gave $125 million to the Columbia Business School to have a, a building named after him. He's also a trustee of Claremont McKenna College. His wife is the new board chair of the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA. Kravis is the vice chair of the Kennedy Center Corporate Fund Board. So like these other private equity figures, he's really tied into these elite circles in a major way. He's also a big art collector. He has paintings by Renoir and Monet. He owns Louis XIV's Furniture Kravis was also a, a big Trump donor. He gave about, a, he gave a million dollars to Trump's inauguration in 2017. And he was actually under consideration, it was reported, for the treasury secretary job. And, you know, like all these other private equity bigwigs, Kravis owns, you know, mansions and estates around the world. He's particularly a big power player in Palm Beach, Florida, you know, the, one of the, the big, you know, private equity and finance elite enclaves in the U.S., Uh, There's actually a Kravis Cultural Center that's named after him. Um, He's a director of the Palm Beach Beach Civic Association. So, yeah, I mean, Kravis is, um, you know, like Schwarzman, like Rubenstein, a major private
3: equity
0: aristocrat. And what's his portfolio look like? Again, KKR is a
3: big investor in fossil fuels, have been for a long time. We have, in addition to the recommendations from the UN IPCC, the International Energy Agency over the last year has also made this really important pivot where they have laid out a roadmap to keep us within a 1.5 degree Celsius scenario and have described it as a very narrow window. And one of the key components to that pathway is no expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure. So the International Energy Agency said last year, we should not build any additional Fossil fuel infrastructure. That's no more pipelines. That's no export terminals. We need to work on containing the carbon footprint that we have now and reducing emissions at existing fossil fuel operations, but expansion is off the table. KKR maybe didn't get the memo. KKR is in the process of building gas pipeline through British Columbia in Canada that would take fracked tar sands to the Pacific coast of British Columbia for export to Asian markets. So they're building this 400 and some mile pipeline, which is new infrastructure to lock in dependence on that fuel stream for decades to come.
0: And it's not just any kind of fossil fuel infrastructure. That's some of the filthiest around.
3: It's some of the dirtiest. If that weren't enough to reconsider whether this is a good investment, the pipeline runs through unceded territory of the Wet'suwet'en people. And the clans there have been, since the last two years, have been involved in resistance. They have raised concerns about all of the environmental impacts, not just of the burning of the fuel, but of the risks of spills Should that pipeline fail, which we all know they frequently do, there are many examples of pipeline failures, and the destruction of habitat through the construction process, in addition to the violations of Indigenous sovereignty. So there is litigation, there are blockades, there have been arrests, the Canadian Mounted Police has bulldozed houses that that the Wet'suwet'en have built. So it is a very contentious battle that KKR is at the heart of. KKR walked into that investment after the resistance had already started. KKR took a controlling stake of that construction project from TC Energy, which is a Canadian pipeline company. KKR walked into that knowing full well that Sueton were already resisting it and decided to go ahead. They have not addressed any of the concerns. So that, and that's just one example. KKR has an extensive fossil fuel portfolio. And it's not limited to North America. They entered into a deal with uh, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company a couple of years ago. It was a $4 billion deal, which is one of the largest oil producers on the planet. And KKR took a 40% stake along with other investors in the pipeline operations of Abu Dhabi. It's a global footprint. The impacts on habitats, on indigenous peoples, and on the climate are extraordinarily harmful. And KKR has not, continues to show an appetite for more. We, we noticed just in the last week that one of their portfolio companies bought up more drilling territory in the United States. So they continue to
0: expand. Right, we're just about out of time, but uh, this is, always comes at the end of the, uh, the interview, but um, more public-facing companies than these guys. Um, you, you know, they're, they're, they're susceptible to public pressure, even if we're not going to get the government to regulate them in any meaningful way. But uh, these guys seem, by the structure of their operations, to be immune from public scrutiny or influence. Um, how do we break through the, those defenses?
3: It's a great question. Look, I think there are always opportunities. There are regulatory opportunities. The SEC under the current administration is taking a closer look at private markets and the operations and and some of the risks of the lack of transparency. So I think that is an encouraging. It remains to be seen what the SEC proposes, um, but some of the initial Ideas that they have floated seem quite promising. The SEC is also looking at requiring further climate disclosures for companies across the board. They're largely focused at the moment on publicly listed companies, but have indicated that they're also interested in, in private markets around the specific questions of climate risk. While the industry is lightly regulated, I do think that there is an opportunity for the SEC and other agencies um, that oversee finance to play a role. In addition to that, I think there are are opportunities for the institutional investors that you mentioned at at the top of this conversation, university endowments, pension funds, to insist that as a condition of uh, committing capital to these managers that they commit to moving away from fossil fuels, commit to a just transition both for the workforces that may be currently involved in fossil fuels, but also for the communities that have been bearing the brunt of the pollution and the environmental impacts over the course of their operations. And, you know, the, those institutional investors have choices about where they put their capital. Many of them have their own, adopted their own policies and are taking the climate risks very seriously because they have that long horizon of wanting to preserve their capital in the case of an endowment or you know to be able to meet the obligations to pensioners in the case of pension funds that long term vision gives institutional investors a real point of leverage where they can press these private equity firms to change their business model and invest toward a 1.5 degree scenario and be transparent about what their impacts are be accountable to what their emissions are and how they are contributing to climate change right now and how they're going to pivot their portfolios away from these damaging fossil fuel investments.
0: Those are Alyssa Giacchino of the PE Stakeholder Project and Derek Seidman of the Public Accountability Initiative, aka Lil Sis, two of the four authors of a report, Private Equity's Dirty Dozen. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the freshly released 12 years to save the planet from Bergsonist. Till next week, bye.